0: The Lord calls us now to a time of fellowship with him as we hear him call us in James 1.22 where we read these words. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he is or was. So this calls us to be doers of the word. Well, brothers and sisters, what is the word? Well, the word, we know, written is the Bible, but living is Jesus Christ. The Bible and Christ, they are indeed one. And so to be doers of the word, what does it mean to be a doer of Christ? Well, that begins with you and I fellowshipping with him, knowing him, loving him, seeking him, and letting that be the overflow of then Indeed, upholding the Word of God, so indeed, this morning this is a call for us to come to the fount of grace, to fellowship with our Lord to together, and then by that means um, be empowered and inspired and desirous of walking after him so let 's do that. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to second or to second to Esther, the eighth chapter and uh <clears throat> This is a continuation of what we saw last week, and we're still not going to finish this chapter. We'll come back to it next week and wrap it up. Um, <clears throat> this chapter as we move into chapter nine. But um, this morning, I'm going to read eight one through three to give us context, and one through three a to give us context, and then we'll dive into this wonderful passage as it describes the glory that awaits us in Christ. Let, let me invite you to stand together with me as we read God's word. Here, you now the word of our king. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther and Mordecai. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then... Esther spoke again to the king. That's follow the reading of God's word, let's pray. Oh, we're so privileged to spend time fellowshipping around this portion of your word, a passage given to people who are living in days like us. Not days of of revelation, days of miracles, days where we need only look around and we see um, you visibly in so many visible ways. But days, O Lord, where your name seems absent. Where the world does not worship you, where we are left to live as aliens and strangers in a land that, that, Lord, seems so rough and difficult. Lord, we know you gave this book for those such uh, pilgrims. Give us the grace of Lord of fellowship, to uh, be benefited and blessed thereby, and to heed the message that you gave your people so long ago. May that be the message, the words of life upon which we sup and live this day, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Some of you know, 2007, I hurt my back such that by 2008, I had a herniated disc with a prolapse of 95%. So my disc was basically, what should have been on the inside was on the outside. And uh, it caused me debilitating pain and misery and suffering. And so I went to the doctor, of course, did the therapies, and none of it worked, And so we opted for surgery. And if you know anything about me, I I don't like needles. I don't like doctors. I don't like... Um, at least doctors in doctors' offices, and, uh, um, or better yet, surgeons on surgeon tables. And um, So I was apprehensive, to say the least. I'd never been in any other capacity other than a physical with a doctor, so, um, or maybe some drugs for a sinus in- infection, but this was it. So I was incredibly nervous, incredibly apprehensive. Yes, God is sovereign, but boy, I wasn't looking forward to going through the process. Well, I had a wonderful doctor, and he had done a lot of these surgeries before, so he was quite competent and quite successful. But he also was incredibly compassionate. He knew how um, it is to go through something that you, know, you have no clue on. So he went to great lengths to, to explain to me what was going to happen, what he was going to do, the jabs, the shots, the cuts, the stitches, the size of the incision, and the expected results. And you know what all that did? It, it gave me a sense of peace. It gave me all the apprehension was gone. Going into the surgery, going to the hospital that day that I checked in, I, there was no apprehension, there was no nervousness. It was just, hey, I know what's going to happen, let's do it. It's amazing about what knowledge about the future does for you and I and where we live. Isn't it? And that's no doubt probably why throughout the Bible God gives us Time and time again, statements of what he's going to do in the future. For example, in John fourteen twenty seven, Christ told his disciples, Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, I will come to you. And now I have told you before it comes to pass, that when it comes to pass, you may believe. This is one of many passages where Scripture is given to us, glimpses into the future, so that when we are pressed against the wall, when our backs are against it, we will be bold and strong and powerful without doubting, but believing. And Esther, the passage at which we're looking right now, is one such section. As you know, Esther is all about God's providence, written for God's people who would soon be in the intertestamental period, where there would be no prophets, no miracles, nothing. God would seem to be absent from life, just as there's no name of God in Esther. So God's people would be living in a world where God seemed absent. But yet, from looking at Esther, what have we learned? While God may be conspicuously absent, he was present very close, clearly throughout this entire ordeal with his people. His name's not mentioned, but his fingerprints are all over the life of God's people during this time. And so he gave this book to, to teach them that, to, to affirm them, to assure them of this truth, that while God may, may seem to be absent, he is ever near. Yet, the, the second to last section, 7 through nine, fifteen, a large section, a large chunk of this book, was written as, as in essence, a, a picture, an explanation of, of, of what God's doing in his providence. So Esther's all about God's providence, all about his care for this world, what he's doing. And 7 through 9.15 explains the method behind the madness, the telos, the goal. What's God doing? Why he did what he did in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. 7 through 9.15 explains all of it as it brings it to this glorious crescendo. Now we've seen from chapter 7, God's providential will as it relates to the wicked. And we saw that it is but a foretaste, this shadow, of what God, in fact, is going to do on the last day. And then last week, we looked at 8, 1 through 2, and we saw, uh, as I titled it there, a shocking and unbelievably glorious reversal. And we saw that each of the three reversals referenced here, point for point, are exactly what God's going to do with us when he comes back. So we see this beautiful eschatological bent towards this passage. Yes, it's what God did in Esther's day. But what he did in Esther's day is, is um, the example, or better yet, the shadow of what he's going to do in all of his providence with us. And this morning, we now turn to the next part of chapter 8. Not only does it give us a shocking and unbelievably glorious reversal, but it also gives us a shocking and unbelievably wise solution. Notice with me, we begin with a vain wish. We pick it up in verse 3. Then, and then, there's a lot of space between verse 2 and 3. Probably two months and ten days. Okay, so we're, we're now advanced, two months and ten days. Okay, then <clears throat> Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. So clearly she's burdened. Clearly, two and a half months later, nothing's changed. We're just marching towards the day that all God's people will be wiped out. Now it's less than seven months away. Is that right? 11, 9, no. Less than eight months away, something like that. And nothing's changed, and she sees it. Time has that ever, ever sense of rolls by, and it doesn't cease, it doesn't slow down. How burdened she was. But once again, she takes her life in, in her hands, and she approaches the king unbidden, and she goes before him, and she pours her heart out before him. Now, that raises an incredible question. Brothers and sisters, from what we've just seen, chapters 6, 7, and 8, 1 through 2, 24-hour time span, where clearly Esther and Mordecai, Mordecai is now prime minister. Esther clearly is a favorite. is favorite has received the pleasure and the, the love of the, the king. She th- She's not worried about her life. And clearly, verse 3, there is no sense that this is a big deal for her to go before him. She's not worried about her life. But she is burdened for her people. Why would she be burdened? I mean, her life spared, Mordecai's life spared. She doesn't know most of these people who are going to die. Why would she be so burdened? Well, it raises the glorious truth that, brothers and sisters, God's kingdom is a family. You and I live in a world where you and I can be just basically selfish and self-contained. We don't have to worry about other people, much less outside these doors, even in this door. How many churches are that they seem cold and distant? Why? Because we've lost this sense of connectivity. Christ we in, in 1 Corinthians Paul describes this for even as the body is one and as many members and all the members of the body though they are many are one body in Christ, so also is Christ. And if one member and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. That's why she and Mordecai are burdened. That's why she's coming before the king, taking her life in her hands, because she's burdened, rightly so, for God's people. So she approaches him knowing that this horrible day is, is quickly marching on where God's people will be executed, um, again, about 11 months, or I'm sorry, eight, 8 months. So she approaches him, and you know Esther, she's calculated. One of her abilities is to persuade. So she approaches him and gives him three reasons why He should avert the uh, law that, or rescind, revoke the law that was passed that would kill God's people. Notice with me each one of them. Um, Then she said, if it pleases the king, verse 5, and if I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in in his sight, we're going to stop there, you might think this is the protocol for anyone entering into his presence, certainly Esther's protocol. If you compare that to um, Esther 5, 7 through 8, if you want to look there, or, or Esther 7, 3, uses almost the exact same uh, language. In fact, it is the same language. If it pleases the king and if I've found favor in his sight. That's just the divine protocol or the, uh, the uh, 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 kingly royal protocol. But she goes beyond that here. Which tells us, in the way that it's written, she's pouring her heart out before him. Notice, it goes more than just that. If it pleases the king, if I found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, the first basis upon which Esther makes an appeal that he revoke the law of Haman is based upon how pleasing she is before him. Haven't I been the loving wife? Haven't I been great to, to you? Haven't I pleased you? Based upon how much I have done to please you, please revoke the sentence. That's the first basis. Notice, secondly, she references the hostile intentions of Haman. Verse 5b Let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. Upon a first reading, it might seem like she's just stating a fact. And she is. But the way that this text is written, it's bigger than that. Okay? She's doing more than just stating facts. She is giving the second reason why he should revoke. Look back at verse 3b. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman, the Agagite, and his plot, which he had devised, and then in our verse, to revoke the letters devised by Haman to destroy the Jews. And this is, the second one is, is basically to uh, to say, hey, king, this incredible uh, uh, devastation that awaits your people came from the enemy, from an evil man. Revoke it because... This guy's evil. He doesn't desert. Why would we honor him? We already hung him. Why in the world would we honor him by allowing this law to go? Revoke it. Third reason. Notice with me verse 6. For how can I endure to see the calamity which shall befall my people? And how can I endure to see the destruction of my uh, kindred? This is the appeal of love. She says, I know you love me. You're a loving husband. You care for, uh, for me. How can you live in a world where I can't endure? Because my kindred and my people are going to die. So she appeals to him based upon his love. You're a loving king. Please, relent, revoke what, you've, what has, is going to t- t- take place. Well, brothers and sisters, as valid as each of these reasons may have seemed to her and to us, I'll underline that one. As valid as these reasons might seem to you and me. Nevertheless, the truth be known, they're weak. Because we know in terms of the first one, haven't I pleased you? Well, Vashti pleased him too. And what happened to Vashti? (laughs) Right? Or, you know, um, Haman, how horrible he is. Truth be known, it was the king who authorized it. Legally speaking, it's the king who made the law, not Haman. So you can't blame Haman for it. you got to blame the king. That falls on his head. The only really valid one is, but you love me. You love me as a king. You love me as a husband. I, I, you, know, you are a wonderful, loving man. Please, out of your love for me, for the sake of your love for me, don't allow this to happen. That's somewhat valid, but the, but there's a problem here. There's a pickle, massive pickle. You know what a pickle is in baseball, right? There's a pickle here. How is this a pickle? The pickle is as much as the king might have been moved by the first and second or third argument or all three of them put together. The king is impotent to do anything about it. Why? Skip down to verse 8. Because, brothers and sisters, unfortunately, there's a law in the Persian Empire, verse 8b a decree which is written in the name of the king, which was the case of Haman's order, and sealed with the king's signet ring, which is the case of Haman's order, may not be re- revoked. The king is basically saying, look, those reasons, they may have been the greatest reasons in the world from our perspective. They, they were great moving reasons. Haven't I pleased you? And isn't the the genesis of this from something horrible? This is a horrible thing. And thirdly, you love me. How how could you not act? While all that sounds great, the problem is you can't change the law of the Persians. That law is intact and will remain and be carried out because it was sealed with the king's signet ring. Can't change it. That brings us then to a lawful solution. Notice verses 7 through 10. So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai, the the Jew, notice he's speaking to them both. Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows, because he stretched out his hands against the Jews. This is a part for the whole. It's a summary of 1 through through 2. In essence, what he's saying is, he's referring back to 1 through 2, and says, look, two months ago in 10 days, I set you, Mordecai, up as prime minister. I gave you, Esther, power and and charge. In essence, fix it yourself. Why are you appealing to to me? You can fix it yourself. Well, how would they fix it themselves? Because you can't change, you can't revoke um, a, a decree. Notice, now you write, in fact, you is in the emphatic in the Hebrew. You, you guys do it. Stop appealing to me. Stop bothering me. You fix this. You can do this. You're in the position to fix this. Now, you write to the Jews as you see fit. In the king's name, seal it with the king's signet ring for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. Do you see what this incredible solution is? What is it? While you can't revoke that law, you can pass another law that would address the threat contained in the first law. Do you see it? While you can't revoke that law, it's, it's, it's irrevocable, you can make another law that would address the threat that the first law poses to all of God's people. And um, thus, he says in verse 9 through 10, So the king's scribes were called at the time in the third month. That's the month of the Sivan, on the 23rd day. So again, that's two months, ten days later. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews. So they made a decree. They, they, Mordecai and Esther came up with a law that would preserve, that would protect God's people from the hostility of the first law. Okay, so Mordecai commanded to the Jews, They say traps, governors, the princes. All this seems a lot of verbiage, but it's important, and you'll see why in one moment. Princes and provinces was extended from India to Ethiopia, to 127 provinces, to every province according to a script, to every people according to the language, as well as to the Jews. This is new um, because that wasn't when Haman passed his. He also wrote it in Hebrew, as well as the Jews according to their script in their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent letters by couriers on horse. So we might read this and go, but that's a lot of verbiage. Why does it have to be there? It's distracting. Let's just get on with the story. It's there because it tells us that what they did is just as authoritative and authentic as what Haman did, okay? With the law passed is the law of the king. Not theirs. It's the law of the king. The impact of this law now becomes um, authoritative irrevocable. All of that is there to show us this. Because if, if you compare this to three chapter 3, verse 12 through uh, 13, basically the same thing. So when Haman made his decree for the king, Mordecai basically, and Esther, but Mordecai's making um, this the name of the king. So it's just as authoritative. All right, so the emphasis here is on the legality of the uh, solution. It's legal. And the solution we know now is another law that's going to protect us from the first law. Okay, well, what is that law? Well, that gives us down to verses 11 through 14, the particulars of the solution. Notice with me. This is a law that Mordecai and Esther came up with. In them, in these letters, so this is what the content of the decree is now. The king granted the Jews, who were in each and every city, the right to assemble, to defend themselves, to destroy to kill, to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their sto- their spoil on one day. in all the provinces of the, the king Ahasuerus, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, which is the exact same day that Haman chose to kill all of God's people. All right, now, just as a footnote here, liberals make a big deal about this in chapter 9. So you'll hear this probably one more time when we get to chapter 9. They have such a problem with this. You say, how evil, what kind of a religion is it that would would allow people, command people to um, attack and kill and destroy and kill women and children and name it? What a horrible uh, religion commentators, uh, uh, conservative ones, are quick to point out they didn't say that when Haman passed his decree. <laughs> it's, they have no problem with God's people being destroyed, but the moment God's people are given the right to defend themselves, underline that phrase, because that's what's going on here, the right to defend themselves, now they have this massive problem. But brothers and sisters, they they completely miss the point. This is not giving them Free, uh, uh, what's the word, open season upon Persians on that day. This is not saying on that day Jews can kill any Persians that, that they want. That's not what it's saying. This decree is saying on that day when the Jews are attacked, they can defend themselves. That's all that this is saying. Don't let anything else bother you. What you read there, and I'll address some of the difficult women, children, and the whole bed. Don't let it bother you. Because all this is saying is God's people can act reactively on that day. If they're being attacked, they can can give unto others what those others are giving unto them. In the ancient world, that's justice. The law code of Hammurabi, right? If you take an eye, you give an eye, right? If you take an arm, you give an arm. Hey, if someone attacks you, you have the right to defend yourself in kind. That's all that this is doing. And to show you that, notice 13 through 14. A copy of the edict to be issued in law, uh, in, uh, as law in each and every province was published to all the peoples so that the Jews should be ready for this day. That's an important phrase later on. They'd be ready for that day. To avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers hastened, impelled by the king's command, went out riding on the royal steeds, and the decree was given out in Susa, the capital. Two words are important. This little phrase: "to avenge themselves on on their enemies." It's important you 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 understand what this is—the essence of the decree. They can avenge themselves on their enemies. What's one? What's an enemy? In the book of Esther, this word "enemy," oyev. I memorized that in the Hebrew because it sounds like a bad guy going, "Oh yeah." Or when I'm a, I'm a kid, hey, mom, I did all my job. And then an older brother or sibling come and say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, He didn't do the job. He's a loser, right? So, oh, Yev is an active word. Okay? What makes an enemy, what makes someone oh, Yev, is if they're actively causing you harm. That's, it. That's an enemy. Um, for example, when we first meet Haman in chapter... Um, what is it, chapter, uh, I don't know what the chapter is, chapter 3, verse 1, we're told that Haman is, a, um, is not, he, no reference to him being an enemy, it's just uh, simply that he is the son of so-and-so. He doesn't become an enemy until we get to, um, uh, where is it, the first time he, he makes the decree, Esther 3, verse 10, and then Esther 8, verse 1, and 13, and 9, 10. He's called an enemy when he passes a decree to kill God's people. When he's when he when his life is hostility against God's people, that's when he becomes an Ohev. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay? That's when he becomes the bad guy. You see it outside of him. Notice chapter 9 verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day when the king's command and edict were, were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them. Who are the enemies of the Jews? Those who would seek to attack them. Not all the Persians. They're not the enemies. Only those people who are seeking to gain mastery over God's people, they in turn become the enemy. It was turned to the contrary that the Jews themselves gain the mastery over those who actively hated them, do you see it in this text? The decree is you can you can exact vengeance against those who are actively seeking to harm you N- next would you notice the word vengeance avenge nakam sounds like nacoming someone 's head off right i 'm going to nakam your head off okay that's another way to memorize so the the second word nakam, okay in Hebrew that word speaks of punitive responses for a prior wrong. So there's a there's a wrong as wrongs taking place you can respond. So very clearly this is not talking about hey Jews guess what God's people on the same day you can rape pillage and burn anyone that you want. That is not what this is saying. This is saying on that day any who attack you you can respond in kind. That's all that this is saying. Now you say okay why is that needed This is why. Understand this. This is huge. Haman's decree passed by the king, in essence, made the entire nation of Persia for one day deputies. It deputized the nation to kill God's people. Now, God's people weren't deputized. Only the nation was. Now, what would happen if a soldier of Persia was bringing a criminal to prison. He, he, he steals. Right? A person, a robber, a thief. He brings him to prison, and that thief turns around and kills him. What's going to happen to that thief? What would justice say? Well, he'd be killed in that day. Why? Because he lifted his hand up against an official of the kingdom. He lifted his hand against a guard, and he killed that guard. Therefore, he should be killed. Brothers and sisters, Haman's law deputized the entire nation such that for a Jew to defend themselves on that day, say there's this Jew a Persian comes to attack him and and enslave his kids, take his property and kill him, if he lifted his hand against him and killed that Persian, after that day, that Jew could be executed because he lifted his hand against an official of the Persian Empire. Do you understand it? So what did this second decree do? It it created a detente. It, It said all of the Jews are also deputized. It's masterful. Okay, the threat that was against them—it basically it's the Cold War, right? Russia has four nukes. Well, we've got five. All right, then they got six. Well, we just made seven. Okay, right? You just keep on going. What's going to happen? Mutually assured destruction. That means no one's going to attack. No one's going to attack them. And if they do, they're nuts. Because if they attack, the same thing that they do—if they try taking your property, you got theirs. They kill your kids, you kill theirs. They take your wife, you take theirs enslaver. Whatever they want to do to you, you can do back unto them. It's simply a detente. That's all that this is. So it's not this evil wicked command to go out and kill and rape and destroy. It's you can defend yourself. You now have become deputized. Now is every other person deputized? Now the Jews are deputized for that one day. And on that one day, they can respond to anyone who attacks them. Do you see it? it's beautiful. So what an incredible, gloriously unthinkable way of averting a certain destruction. You can't revoke the law, but you can make a law that would, that would render, mute the threat. Okay. Now I want to apply this we could go on to the very end, but I want to spend a little bit of time applying it because, brothers and sisters, view that what we just read through the eyes of the kingdom of God, through kingdom eyes, and you're going to, you're going to be so blessed. Okay, we've already seen chapter 7 is, a, is, a, is a, a shadow of what is going to happen in the end times. As Haman's life was suddenly snuffed out on top of the world, then in one moment, he's dead. Right, well, we know that's going to, what's, what's going to happen on the on the end times. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord is like a thief in the knife. While they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon. Well, then the destruction will come upon them suddenly, like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. So, chapter seven, as we've seen, is a graphically beautiful shadow of what awaits the non-believer. Beautiful my. Let me strike that from the notes. Okay, but well, graphic depiction of what's going to happen on the the last day. Chapter 8, 1 through 2, we saw last week. Point for point, this is exactly what's going to happen on the last day for you and me. This incredible, shocking, gloriously unthinkable solution. Well, brothers and sisters, you will look at chapter 8, 3 through verse 14 through the lens, the near lens, looking upon the kingdom of God and, and, and seek to see... In what way does this correspond to God's kingdom? What you're going to find is once again a glorious, almost point-for-point point parallel. This is not just Esther. This is you and me. Let me explain it to you. Let's let me use the, the outline. Okay, real quickly. The vain wish. Okay, the vain wish. It begins with Genesis 2. God creates world. He places man in the world. After his image, he creates them. And then he, he, he wants to enter into a relationship with man. What does he do? He enters into what we call the covenant of works. Genesis 2, 16. The Lord commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Well, what did Adam and Eve do? They ate. He ate. And as our federal head, our representation, as our federal head, all of mankind became damned in him, became Uh, liable to hell because of Adam. Everyone's born going to hell. No one's born clean slate. Everyone's born in Adam because in in Adam all die. Everyone's born knowing that they're going to hell. Now, how do we respond to that? What do we do? Well, we, we typically approach that bad news, even as Christians, one of three ways or a combination. One we go before God and we say, God, but haven't we been good? Just like Esther. Haven't we been good? Haven't we pleased you? Lord, why would you cause cancer? Why would these things happen to me? Because haven't we been good people? It's exactly what we do, crazily. Esther hit human nature, or at least what she does reflects human nature, spot on. First thing, we say, Lord, haven't I been... Secondly, what do we do? Well, we philosophically go, well, wait a second here. Why did the fall take place? Because of Satan. Satan's the bad guy. God, come on. Satan tempted Adam and Eve. Why don't you attack Satan? And, and you will. So, Lord, come on, relent. Relent. It's not us. It's Haman. It's not us. It's Satan. Blame shift. It's Satan. Very typical. Thirdly, but God, I thought you loved me. Lord, avert cancer, avert the difficulties, avert life, avert hell, because God, brothers and sisters, many people leave, believe God loves them too much to send them to hell. That's why they're not going there. God loves me too much. Yes, I don't go to church. Yes, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I, I live in my sin, but God's a loving God. And on the last day, he'll simply say, you know what? We'll just throw that out. It doesn't apply to you because I love you. That's the the vain wish. And amazing, now that we're saved, get this, brothers and sisters, we still relate to God on the basis of of parts of that vain wish. Lord, haven't I done? Don't you love me? How could you? What's the answer? What's the lawful uh, solution? Well, God gave it. The lawful solution is, well, well, get this. Let's say, before we go there. let's say, God listens to your plea and says, all right, I do love you. And yes, you have done such wonderful things. Can he change the law? He can't. Just like Ahasuerus could not change the first decree, the decree that Ammon had him sign, the, the covenant of works cannot be changed. For, for God to change it, he would have to compromise his character, his justice. Okay, justice says I must kill you, but I just won't follow that law right now. If God does that, he's no longer God. He's a demon. So God can't change that decree. No matter how much we we might plead. Hear this, brothers and sisters. No matter how much you might plead the love of God, your, your activity, what you've done, God cannot change the original relationship we have with him. Can't change it. So what's the answer? He creates another law. The law which addresses the hostility contained in the first decree. And what's that law? Well, he became a man, perfectly born, born under the Adamic uh, covenant, upholds the Adamic covenant because he's God. He doesn't sin. And then, and here's the second law the law of substitution. He makes another law, and that's the law of substitution. Listen to Isaiah chapter 53 all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. What did this do for us, brothers and sisters? Not only did it forgive our sin, but it gives us life. Brothers and sisters, the law of substitution. God said, I'll go under the law that kills you. I'll uphold it, and then I'll give you my life. That's the law of substitution. You'd never dreamt that that was possible in Genesis 2. Genesis 2, we're damned because, or Genesis 3, because Adam disobeyed and Adam all died. And we have nothing to say about it. But God, being rich in love, indeed, rich in his grace, became man, upheld it, and then gave his life, another glorious law, the law of substitution, gave his life in the place of the sinner. He took away, thereby mooting, taking away, destroying the threat of the first law. Corinthians fifteen. So also it is written: the first Adam became a living soul; the last Adam, Jesus Christ, became a life-giving Spirit. So through that He gives us life. He takes upon Himself the punishment, and He thereby gives us His life. That's the law of substitution. Such that Romans five eighteen. So then, is through one transgression there re- there resulted condemnation to all men; even so, through one act of righteousness there 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 resulted justification of life to all men. Oh, man, isn't that amazing? What you see in Esther is exactly, it's the shadow of exactly what God would do with the Adamic covenant, which we violated. This letter, this law, which was hostile to us, God took it away by nailing it to the cross. Now, if you're following with me, if you've been redeemed by the Jesus Christ, then you, oh boy, I hope there's relief. Think with me how the Jews would have responded, how God's people would have responded on that day that they read the de- the second decree, what do you suppose they would have felt? You just read, you can defend yourself. You're now an author, you, you now are an, are an official authorized vessel of the state for one day. So anyone who wants to attack you, you can defend. What would that do to you? That'd give you a sense of confidence, wouldn't it? You'd be done with making furtive appeals. You'd be done with trying to manipulate. But don't you love me? Haven't I done these great things? You'd be done with that because you know there's a second command and that second law addresses the first law. Brothers and sisters, be done with any kind of tit-for-tat relationship with God. I did this, God. You have to do that. Do you understand how vain it is? It doesn't address the issue. As much as God would love to just overlook what Adam did. He can't do it. The only answer is for you and I to live confidently in light of of the provision of the second law. Isn't that glorious? But secondly, what else would you do if you were a Jew in that day? If you were a Jew in that day and the law was, uh, the second law was out, you not would feel confident, but what else would you do? Honestly, think of it. What would you do? Um, when that day came, what would you do as God's people? You'd band together. That's where it talks about if, if an army comes against God's people. What does that imply? God's people are going to be banding together. Brothers and sisters, what, what, uh, what are we called to do in Scripture? As the body of Christ, band Together. That's what, we do. That's what discipleship is about. That's what Sunday fellowship is about. That's what the Sabbath is about. It's a time for us to worship God and then band together to encourage, lift up, bear each other's burdens Encourage each other to know, lift your eyes, look at the second command, the second provision, which addresses the threat of the first. Yes, you may think, I've been such a horrible husband or a horrible wife or a horrible child. How could God ever forgive me? Because of the second provision. What's the second uh, provision? The law of substitution. Christ went in your place. It's over. No longer do you need to worry about placating God, God addressed the greatest threat against us by himself. So Christian, let us be a people who with Esther has a burden for her countrymen, has a burden for her people, but now with God's people, understand that that second law, may that be our rally point in our glory, that second law that delivers us, lifts us up and frees us from all fear, doubts or threats that, that might come against us. For brothers and sisters, in glory we'll look back upon this world and say, all the threats, all the things about all of it, disease, war, the threat of war, famine, disease, sickness, um, hot, um, natural disasters, all of those things will seem but insignificant in light in comparison to what we have in Christ. And today, you have it in Jesus Christ." Let's comfort each other with those words. Let's pray. Father, what a delight and joy it is to look at another section of Esther. And this section that is such a picture, a foreshadowing of what awaits us in you. And a foreshadowing of what occurred when Jesus Christ came to this earth. That Lord, through his stripes we are healed. Through his life we live. Through his death we are forgiven. God, I pray that you'd give us the grace to be done with the human nature evidenced by Esther, who would seek to barter, blame shift, or appeal vainly to this Santa Claus love. When Lord, we have before us the love of Christ, the, the table of the Lord proclaiming, indeed, the powerful um, love of Christ where he gave his life that we might live. God, may that be our glory our confidence, and our joy. Father, for the one hearing this who does not know you, we pray, O Lord, that you would do a work of grace in their lives that let them see that as loving as you indeed are, as omnipotent as you are, you cannot overturn the destruction that awaits mankind, for that would be to deny yourself, and you cannot do that. Lord, rather open their eyes that they might see the second law, the law of substitution—that would be their glory, their boast, and their joy. They would see that indeed God Himself went in my place, that I might live in Him. Father, we pray, encourage us, strengthen us, and give us the grace as a congregation to remind each other of these glory of this glorious truth. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.